This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the fifth episode of season 10. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Two facts that sound like bullshit. Here's an interesting one. Did you know, according to the Salmon Act 1986 in the UK... A person shall be guilty of an offence if they are suspected of handling a fish in suspicious circumstances. I'll leave the word suspicious to your imagination there. This applies to salmon, trout, eels, lampreys, smelt and freshwater fish, as well as other fish specified under Section 40A of the Salmon and Freshwater Fisheries Act 1975. I do love me a random law that's still in existence. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. It's not about salmon, you'll be pleased to hear. The quote is, Tea, was there ever a more universal and life-sustaining beverage? That was said by one of my childhood heroes, Ray Mears. This case was suggested by Leanne Shaw via Messenger. We're in the town of Flint this week in the North Wales county of Flintshire. Here are five quickfire facts about Flint. Number one, Edward I of England began to build Flint Castle in 1277. Both castle and town were attacked by the forces of Madog Ap Llewellyn during the revolt of 1294-95, probably saying that wrong. I always do with Welsh cases. The town's defenders burnt it to deny its use to the Welsh. Number two, Richard II, grandson of Edward I, was handed over to his cousin, childhood playmate and rival to the crown, Henry Bolingbroke, later Henry IV, in Flint Castle in 1399. Act 3, Scene 3 of the Shakespeare play Richard II used the castle as its setting as a result. Number 3, the National Eisteford of Wales was held in Flint in 1969, please forgive my pronunciation, as is the tradition, a circle of gorsed stones were left in a field adjacent to Gwynedd Primary School. You'll want to remember that fact for later in the story. Number four, during the laying of the foundations of the town hall, many Roman-era coins were discovered. I bet they were worth a pretty penny. And number five, former footballer and moustache aficionado Ian Rush grew up in Flint. Can you tell I ran out of fun facts at this point? The approximate population of Flint, according to the 2011 census, is 12,953. This story focuses on the tragic death of a schoolgirl called Janet Commons. Born on June 9, 1960, and raised in Flint by her parents, Edward, Ted for short, and Eileen Commons, Janet lived with them in one of the many bungalows on King Edward Drive. It looks like a nice enough street. Most of the bungalows appear to be detached, but the odd semi-detached property is scattered along the short road. Here's a bit of background about Ted and Eileen. Janet's dad had previously been in the British Army until 1957, after which he began working where many men of the time did, shot and steelworks. 
The workforce was around 10,000 strong at the time, although it dwindled down to around 6,500 by the time British Steel closed the factory in March 1980. Eileen Commons was a nurse and married Ted in 1959. Both of Janet's parents were hard-working, working-class citizens, and when their only child was brought into the world a year after they tied the knot, they couldn't have been happier. Janet was fortunate to have been raised in a family overflowing with love and affection. The strong bond between Janet and her parents was evident from the outset, as they were a tight-knit unit that cherished each other's presence. Their unwavering support and devotion towards their daughter created an environment filled with warmth and happiness. As Janet matured, her connection with her mother deepened even further. They shared an indescribable closeness that only grew stronger over time. Whether it was engaging in heartfelt conversations or simply spending quiet moments together, Janet found solace in the loving embrace of her mum. As a kid, it was not uncommon for young Janet to sit quite happily and play on her own. She entertained herself by using her imagination to immerse herself into the fantasy world of dolls. Those solitary moments allowed her creativity to flourish whilst also showcasing her independence. It will have been a pleasure for Ted and Eileen to watch. As the father of a young daughter, I could relate to that, where forever pretending to take my daughter's Barbies on trips to New York and Africa in a motorhome. I do sometimes ask her how the motorhome will manage to cross, say, the Atlantic Ocean, but I'm quickly put in my place and informed that it just will. Being a 60s baby, perhaps Janet played with a Cindy doll, the UK's answer to Barbie released in 1963, or maybe she was lucky enough to own one of the Mattel-manufactured American dolls. Regardless, Janet was very much a homegirl. She enjoyed being in the company of her parents as well as her many friends, but her adventures outside of the home didn't often stray far from the street on which she lived. One of Janet's passions was swimming. She had an immense love for it. She could often be found at the local swimming baths when she wasn't playing in the road with her mates, who loved it just as much as her. In January 1976, 15-year-old Janet was a pupil at Flint High School, which happened to be conveniently situated a mere 400 yards away from her home. The short distance allowed for a two-minute walk each way, not the worst commute in the world. It was on that brief walk home on Wednesday the 7th after school that Janet and her friends excitedly made plans for another trip to the swimming baths that evening. Arriving home and expecting to be granted permission by her parents, as she typically was, Janet's buoyant mood quickly soured after Eileen informed her that she was not allowed to go. The reason was down to how Janet looked. Her skin was pale and she appeared rather ill, so her mum figured the most logical thing to do was to keep her at home. The mother and daughter got into a small argument about it, as parents and teenagers tend to do, which ended with Janet storming off to her room in what Eileen described as a huff. Determined not to let the fear of missing out get the better of her, Janet came up with a plan. She would sneak out of her bedroom window and go swimming anyway, despite essentially being grounded. Before heading out, she grabbed a pen and some paper and left a note for her parents, knowing that, inevitably, they'd soon check up on her and would want to know where she was. She promised to be back by half eight, which she deemed reasonable considering the circumstances. Janet will have known that her parents would be fuming at her disobeying them and that repercussions awaited her at home, but it was a problem she'd have to face upon her return. Sadly, the chance to face her parents would never arrive. Ted and Eileen Commons never saw their daughter alive again. 
Janet had a lovely evening swimming with her friends and was clocked leaving the pool area at around 7.30. She told one of her mates that she must be getting back because her parents had likely discovered her note. It may have crossed her mind that arriving home earlier than she had stated in the note might perhaps dampen her punishment. Then again, Janet was spotted around 45 minutes later at 8.15 in the company of two boys. The witness who saw Janet with them was walking along Cud on Road just down from King Edward Drive and described one of the boys as being fair-haired and thin, whereas the other looked a fair bit older. The witness noted that Janet was laughing and joking with the two boys, but it's not clear as to whether she knew them or if they'd just met. Not long after that sighting, Janet made her way to another of her friend's houses and knocked on the door. Asking if she could come out and join her, Janet was disappointed to hear that she was not allowed. She undoubtedly felt a touch of empathy given what Eileen had told her a couple of hours earlier. The sightings of Janet stop after that, so whether she was still with those two boys she was spotted with is something I can't confirm, but at some point, probably between 9 and 9.30pm, Janet was attacked by someone as she walked down Albert Avenue. To get from Coedon Road to Albert Avenue, you have to turn right onto Ford Glinda, but Janet's house was located two left turns further than that. It's hard to explain on an audio podcast, but if you look at Google Maps, you'll know what I'm on about. What I'm trying to say is, she was walking in the opposite direction to a house. Why that was, again, we can only speculate. The same applies as to whether she was alone or not. I'll come on to what happened to Janet shortly, but first I'll explain what was happening back at the bungalow on King Edward Drive. Ted and Eileen, deeply concerned for the daughter's safety, were overcome with worry as they grappled with the frustrating reality that Janet had defied their wishes and snuck out of the house unnoticed. As the clock struck 9pm, Eileen took matters into her own hands by embarking on a desperate search throughout the local neighbourhood in the hopes of finding any trace of Janet. With each passing minute seeming like a lifetime, an hour soon went by without any sign of their beloved only child. Ted then went out looking for her and also came up short. Rather than heading out together, they made a practical decision. One would remain behind at home on standby while the other ventured out into the night. That strategy would ensure that someone was present if Janet unexpectedly returned home during their search efforts. As 11pm struck, their desperation reached its peak. Ted and Eileen were worried enough to inform the police of what had gone on and reported Janet as missing. Four whole days would pass before the worried parents received the news they feared. Janet's body had been found. The discovery was made by three schoolgirls who were playing in the fields near Gwynedd Primary School on the cold Sunday morning of January 11th. Little did they know their innocent adventure would lead them to a horrifying crime scene. Remember the fact about the circle of gorsed stones I mentioned at the start of the episode? It soon became apparent that Janet had been attacked there before being dragged across the ground and callously discarded under a nearby thicket. That was confirmed when traces of mud found on Janet's clothing perfectly matched those discovered beside the ominous stones. Terrified, the three girls ran and found the school caretaker's residence, a quaint little house nestled within the grounds of the school. Remember, this was back in the days when school caretakers lived within a close proximity to schools themselves as part of their duty to maintain order and security. Janet's post-mortem revealed the horrifying details of the heinous crime she had endured. She had been subjected to a sexual assault so brutal and disturbing that its graphic nature is too distressing to disclose here. 
Her life was taken away through asphyxiation, with her cause of death being a result of her neck and her external airway being compressed and blocked during the sexual assault. In addition to those unimaginable injuries, Janet's body bore further evidence of the violent encounter. Bruising was found under a chin, suggesting forceful contact or pressure applied during the attack. Also, abrasions were found on her neck, and she also suffered wounds on her scalp. Before being abandoned in the nearby thicket, Janet's body had been left lying face down for some considerable time. That suggests that either her killer remained in close proximity to her during that agonising interval, or perhaps even left temporarily, but returned later to move and conceal her body. Either way, it's chilling. The town of Flint, once a tight-knit, closely bonded community, was plunged into a state of profound shock. Stuff like that simply didn't happen in Flint. It's the sort of thing you heard about on the news in the big Welsh cities in England, but not there. The news of Janet's death shattered the sense of security that had long defined the peaceful community. The authorities launched an extensive and unprecedented manhunt, drafting in well over a hundred officers to meticulously comb through every corner of the surrounding areas. They left no stone unturned in their search for clues and answers. Police initiated painstaking house-to-house inquiries and spoke to approximately 10,000 people during that exhaustive investigation. The story made national headlines throughout the UK, regularly occupying page one on newspapers including the Liverpool Echo and the Bristol Evening Post. All local men aged between 17 and 22 were met with calls for transparency regarding their whereabouts during the evening of January 7th. One of the individuals who came under scrutiny during the investigation was Stephen Huff, a young man who had recently celebrated his 17th birthday on January 8th. The timing of his birthday raised a few eyebrows as it coincided with the day following Janet's death. Huff lived in close proximity to the field where Janet's body were found, so he had an undeniable connection to the crime scene. He lived so close, in fact, that his grandparents' house, with whom he stayed, overlooked it. Huff had left high school in Easter 1975 and was in and out of employment. He was a fit and healthy lad who was well into his rugby and ice hockey, so he would certainly have been more than capable of overpowering Janet and inflicting her life-ending injuries. When questioned about his whereabouts on that fateful night, Huff initially remained tight-lipped. His silence and evasiveness only deepened suspicions surrounding his potential involvement, but after some time had passed, he unexpectedly blurted out a confession that left authorities bewildered, but not for the reasons you might expect. Huff's revelation did not pertain to any direct involvement in Janet's death. Instead, it revolved around a deeply personal matter which filled him with immense shame and embarrassment. He wanted to come clean about having spent the night masturbating in his car. As surprising as that admission was at first glance, it turned out to be nothing more than an attempt by Huff to divert attention away from himself. The partial truth eventually emerged when he made a further confession. His actual movements that night involved him siphoning petrol from nearby cars. He was subsequently prosecuted and fined for that offence. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Another man questioned by the police was 18-year-old Noel Jones, a scrap metal dealer who has been described frequently as being barely literate. He was a member of the travelling community, originally from Wrexham, a city 20 miles south of Flint, but at the time of this story, he lived in a caravan just a few miles away from Flint. 
Noel's first encounter with the police came after he was stopped in a lay-by on January 8th by two policemen who questioned him as to his whereabouts the previous evening. He denied any knowledge of being involved in Janet's death and would later claim that he had no idea the two men questioning him were police officers. Just a day later, Noel decided to propose to his 16-year-old girlfriend Linda Eyeball. I didn't realise how daft that name would come out, but now that I've said it, I feel like I need to spell it. I-B-A-L-L. Ibal. I'm going to go with Eyeball. Linda accepted his proposal and they became engaged despite the looming cloud of suspicion surrounding him. What unfolded in the following week was both perplexing and disturbing. Out of nowhere, Noel made a shocking confession to his new fiancée whilst he was sat on a knee. He revealed that he was the person responsible for killing Janet Commons. He followed that up by asking her to provide him with an alibi should the police come knocking again. A chilling conversation then unfolded in a van the next day. Noel, accompanied by his mum, brother and Linda, attempted to downplay his earlier comment about having killed Janet as mere joking. Initially dismissing it as a joke in very poor taste, Linda just couldn't shake off the uneasy feeling that remained within her. Despite having conflicting emotions and being uncertain about how seriously to take Noel's words, Linda displayed immense courage by informing the police about what she had been told. After all, she would have been implicated if she'd provided Noel with an alibi, so I don't really blame her for coming forward, even knowing the eventual outcome of this case. Noel Jones was arrested on suspicion of murder on January 29th, but continued to claim that his remarks about killing Janet were meant as a joke. Here's where the story takes an even more bizarre turn. By the following day, Noel had signed two detailed confessions in which he admitted to taking Janet's life. In the second statement, he attempted to implicate another man called Michael Orford in Janet's death. Michael just so happened to be the partner of one of Noel's cousins and was accused of not only being involved in Janet's death, but also of sexually assaulting her. The two men clearly must have had a beef of some kind. As a result, detectives took swift action and apprehended Michael for questioning. The 20-year-old attended Flint Magistrates Court on March 23rd, but all charges against him were dismissed due to insufficient evidence linking him to the crime. Noel's trial took place in June at Mould Crown Court with the proceedings being overseen by Mr Justice Cantley. He made a guilty plea on day two of the trial, but not to murder, to manslaughter. Happy that the evidence and confessions backed up Noel's guilty plea, Mr Justice Cantley accepted it and handed him a 12-year prison sentence for killing Janet. Noel has since gone on record to explain how difficult and dangerous the time he spent behind bars was. Prisoners would spit at him, call him a beast and threaten to stab him. It was the sort of prisoner you'd find on a VP wing. Serving six of the 12 years and being released in 1982, Noel changed his name and moved to a different area of Wales to begin a new life under his new identity. He eventually married and had kids, but the physical, mental and emotional scars of being locked up for six years would remain with him. His health has significantly suffered as a result, and if you're currently thinking, so what, calm as a bitch, you deserve what you got, etc. Please wait until I finish the story before passing judgement. If we fast forward to 2006, a review of the scientific evidence gathered during the initial investigation into Janet's death had been carried out and a breakthrough discovery had been made. Advances in technology had led to DNA being found on one of the samples taken from Janet's body. It belonged to an unidentified male, 
someone not in the national DNA database. DNA obviously wasn't a thing back when Noel was arrested, so his DNA won't have been on the database, but one assumes his DNA was somehow discounted and it didn't match. I'm not going to speculate on if or how they acquired Noel's DNA or the Criminal Justice Act 2003 law reforms relating to double jeopardy, because I don't have sufficient knowledge to pass comment. If we fast forward again to October 2016, a full 40 years after Janet Commons was killed, we come to the final revelation of this convoluted story. Stephen Huff, who was by then a 57-year-old father of two, was arrested in connection with an unrelated matter. It wasn't something as trivial as petty theft, mind. He was arrested for sexually assaulting and beating up a 15-year-old girl in February of that year after plying her with alcohol. Sound familiar? It should. As with all UK arrests post-1995, Stephen's DNA was taken and ran against the database. He was first confirmed as having sexually assaulted the teenager in February after his semen was recovered from her body and underwear. Then came the case's most astounding breakthrough. Stephen's DNA had a hit on the database. It matched DNA found on samples taken from Janet Commons' body four decades earlier. The DNA was said by forensic scientist Alexander Pete to have originated from sperm cells, with some of Janet's DNA also being found in a second test. Curiously, in a third test, there were low-level indications of DNA belonging to a third individual, but it was not sufficient enough to determine said individual's origin and confirm their involvement regarding having sexually assaulted Janet. That leaves the question open as to whether or not a third person, possibly a man based on the test results, was involved in Janet's death. That's something for you to ponder. Huff's sexual assault charge was soon upgraded to murder and he was swiftly re-arrested. During police interviews, Huff went with the standard no-comment approach when answering any questions directed towards him. He sat there in a defensive position with his arms crossed for the duration and couldn't have looked more guilty if he'd tried. He was banged to rights after all, it was a one in a billion chance of the DNA recovered from Janet's body not belonging to him. Still, he didn't have the decency to admit what he'd done and therefore forced Janet's family to sit through a trial in which every last detail of their beloved Janet's injuries were laid bare. To fill in a bit of a blank regarding those 40 years between Janet's death and Huff's murder charge, I'll add some context to his character. Huff joined the army soon after leaving school and was stationed in Germany in the 1980s. It was in that decade that he dragged a hotel receptionist into some toilets and strangled her before being disturbed and letting her go. He was convicted of grievous bodily harm and received a five-year prison sentence. He was also dismissed from the army after being court-martialed. Huff's murder trial took place in the summer of 2017 at Mould Crown Court. Mr Justice Lewes oversaw the proceedings. Many questions cropped up regarding the initial murder trial with Noel Jones and the apparent bungling of the case by the police. Biologist Dr Anthony Peabody took to the stand and testified about the labelling process during Janet's post-mortem as he was involved in it. He explained that the labelling of some swabs did not occur as record keeping back in the 70s wasn't as sophisticated as it is now. Some swabs taken from Janet's body and mouth were not recorded for example. Dr Peabody said the fact there was no record of the mouth swab suggested it showed nothing of significance. When cross-examined and asked directly if he'd made a mistake during the post-mortem, the doctor replied, It's not a mistake. It's how things were done in 1976. 
The jury acquitted Huff of murder, but found him guilty of manslaughter as they couldn't decide if he had intended to kill Janet or not. Huff was handed a 12-year sentence for manslaughter, an 8-year sentence for buggery by a male with a female aged under 16, and an 8-year sentence for rape. Each of those sentences were to be served concurrently. After pleading guilty to serious sexual assault rather than rape in respect to the 15-year-old girl in February 2016, Huff was handed a separate three-year sentence to the three aforementioned ones. That sentence was to be served upon completion of the others, taking his total sentence to 15 years. Janet's uncle, Derek Easton, the husband of Eileen's sister, read a statement on behalf of the family after the second trial. It read, The difficulty for the family is that he has had a life been married and had children, but he stole Janet's future and took away the opportunity for Eileen, Ted and the rest of the family to see Janet grow up, get married and have her own children. Today's verdict cannot bring Janet back to us, but hopefully the weeks and months to come will provide us with some closure. Ted had previously passed away some years earlier after suffering with a long-term illness. He was said to have never gotten over the death of his only child and lost interest in being alive. Eileen has also never been the same since Janet was cruelly taken away from her and was far too traumatised to attend Huff's trial. In the aftermath of Huff's sentence, the local Flint community lay flowers at the Circle of Gorsed Stones in memory of Janet Commons. But what about Noel Jones, I hear you ask? Well, Noel launched an appeal to clear his name and have his conviction overturned after Huff was sentenced. He went on record explaining that he felt pressured by the police into signing the two statements and said he was nothing more than a scapegoat. They supposedly used inappropriate interviewing techniques with him to exploit his vulnerability and he never appealed his sentence for fear of having it extended. Finally, after 43 years of being labelled a child molester and killer, Noel Jones had his name cleared in January 2019 when the Court of Appeal ruled that he had been the victim of a serious injustice. Two months later, an independent Office for Police Conduct investigation into North Wales Police concluded that there was insufficient evidence that officers had breached the discipline regulations of the time or committed criminal offences when interviewing and detaining a suspect relating to the murder of Janet Commons. The case was voluntarily referred to the Independent Police Complaints Commission by North Wales Police after Stephen Huff's arrest in 2016. A rather lengthy statement published by the IOPC on March 14th, 2019 read as follows. At the time of the original murder investigation, Schedule 1 of the 1965 Police Discipline Regulations set out the disciplinary code and what constituted misconduct by a person serving with the police. Our investigation found insufficient evidence that the officers may have breached the judge's rules to such an extent that it could amount to an offence of perverting the course of justice, misconduct in public officer or a breach of the discipline regulations. We also found that the officer involved in the subsequent review, who chaired an unsolved crimes meeting in 2010, had no case to answer and did not breach the modern standards of professional behaviour. The office looked at complaints made that officers had deprived Noel Jones of food, drink and rest and had pressured him into making a false confession. He stated that he was kept in a room for two days without anyone being notified of his arrest and that he did not ask for a solicitor because he had not known that he was entitled to receive legal advice. However, the contemporaneous evidence indicates that Mr Jones was detained in custody for a total of 19 hours and signed his statement admitting the offence five hours after arriving at the station. 
The case was revisited at an unsolved crimes meeting in 2010 as North Wales police remained of the view that more than one person had been involved in the rape and murder due to the unidentified DNA profile on Janet's clothing. A senior officer recommended the case was filed and revisited in the event of a DNA match, which we considered reasonable based on the information available at the time. In a nutshell, they didn't think that Noel Jones was treated wrongly. They felt that the interview at the time was sound and therefore, I guess, his conviction was justified. Doesn't really make sense considering he was innocent, but that's what I took from that statement. According to the law pages, Stephen Huff's parole eligibility date was June 8th, 2023, almost two months ago to the day of this episode being released. I tried my best to find out whether he was paroled or whether he remains incarcerated, but I couldn't find anything. Let's hope, for the safety of women and girls everywhere, that it's the latter. And that was the story of Janet Commons and British murderer Stephen Huff. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one. If you're listening on Spotify, you can leave me a note at the bottom of the episode to let me know what you thought. I've got four new reviews to read out this week. Andy2859 left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts titled Amazing. It reads, How have I just discovered this podcast? Length of episodes and level of detail is perfect. Quirky approach, which I love, with the little add-on facts and quotes. Incredibly well-written and objective in his approach, Stuart tells the perfect story working my way through the back catalogue and loving it. Paul Robinson 149 left a 5 star review on Podchaser. It reads, As a Yorkshireman myself, I really appreciate Stuart's dry wit and humour, which breaks the well-researched and factual content. I, like you Stu, am fascinated by how these people get to the point of murder and the story that leads to it. I'm also interested in why these people think they can try and get away with it. Keep up with the great work, Stu. Tom Cools left a 5 star review on BritishMurders.com titled Amazing. It reads, Recently discovered this podcast within the last few weeks and I've nearly caught up with the recent episodes. I listen on my way to work, at work and on the way home. Literally cannot get enough. The best true crime podcast out there, hands down. Also, just wanted to say that I recently listened to the Lewis Danes episode and a few friends of mine went to the same school as him. They've disclosed that the warning signs were there from the start. Sad that it could not have been prevented. And finally, Mark Cutler left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Great Podcast. It reads, I discovered your podcast last year and I've listened to every one as I travel a lot and it makes the journey go a lot quicker listening to your podcast told in a tasteful and respectful way. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Andy, Paul, Tom and Mark for leaving the show such lovely reviews. If you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via buying me a coffee, the links for each are on my website. Thank you, hello and welcome to my latest Patreon members, Kim Anstey, Paul Tudor and Claire Hill. By the way, I'm currently running a Patreon exclusive giveaway which ends at midnight tomorrow, August 4th. To enter, you simply need to join any tier of my Patreon and like the giveaway post on Patreon. If you head to patreon.com slash britishmurders, you'll get more info. Please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll get a cheeky little shout out for your troubles. Ah, That's it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.